Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Cooperation with Europe, competition with China, and conflict with Russia. But it always comes back to inflation one way or another. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on how close we may be to a recession here in the United States. I think the risks of a 2022 recession are significantly higher than I would have judged uh, six or nine weeks ago. And Deborah Lair of Edelman Global Advisory on just how much China has changed in the 25 years since it took back Hong Kong. We've come a long way as they built a world-class legal system and trade system. Much of the week was consumed with global events as President Biden traveled to Germany to try to persuade other leaders of the G7, like French President Macron, that they should limit how much the world pays for Russian oil. Our ministers will continue following the initiative of the United States to work so that such a ceiling can exist by applying the broadest possible alliance of buyers. And then moved on to Madrid to work with Turkey to admit Sweden and Finland into the NATO alliance. It's been historic 24 hours here in Madrid as NATO leaders gather. Turkish President Erdogan has lifted his objections for Finland and Sweden to join the NATO alliance. We look to Europe even for the latest on the Fed, where Chair Jay Powell appeared at Sintra with other central bankers and reaffirmed his commitment to beat inflation no matter the risk. We're very strongly committed to using our tools to 
get inflation to come down. The way to do that is to slow down growth, ideally keep it positive. Is there a risk that we would go too far? Certainly there's a risk. But uh, I, I wouldn't agree that it's the, the biggest risk to the economy. And just as things wound down in Europe, they moved on to Hong Kong, where President Xi traveled outside mainland China for the first time in 893 days to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the handover from Britain. Hong Kong enjoys a unique position, favorable conditions, and broad space for development. The central authorities fully support Hong Kong in seizing the historic opportunities presented by our country's development. But Washington wasn't left without its own fair share of drama this week, as a former aide to President Trump's chief of staff gave dramatic testimony about Mr. Trump's reported willingness to let the mob gather on January 6th, even if they did have weapons. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. But with all that was going on around the world, in the end, it came back to inflation and the economy and growing fears of recession. For the week, the equity markets were down, with the S&P 500 off over 2% since Monday, and the Nasdaq down over 4%. And that was after a rally on Friday, while bonds were being bought, leaving the yield on the 10-year under 2.9%, down 25 basis points. But the bigger story of the week ended on Thursday, the close of the first half, which ended up being the worst for the equity market since 19. 1962, and the worst for 10-year treasuries since, get this, they were first sold back in 1788. Here to help us sort it all out are Jillian Tett, Financial Times Editor-at-Large and U.S. Editorial Board Chair, and Peter Krauss, Chairman and CEO of Aperture Investors. Jillian, let me start with you, actually, on what we saw in the markets. What's driving the markets from your perspective right now? Well, the best way to make sense of the equity markets is to recognize that a month ago, investors had a nasty shock when they realized that rates were going up. You know, the inflation numbers have been coming much higher than expected, and the Fed has really accelerated. What we're seeing today, though, is that investors are realizing that earnings are being hurt by the underlying economic slowdown. And that is really what is starting to drag on people as they worry not just about inflation, but stagflation, the combination of price growth and slowing, sorry, price increases and slowing growth that frankly we've not seen since the 1970s. So Peter, the question everybody wants to know is how bad is it gonna get? How far are we into this decline in your judgment? I think there's two answers to that. One is how far are the markets down into their ultimate decline and how far are we from an economic point of view into slowing growth slash recession. I think on the former point, we're probably two thirds or a little bit more of the way to a bottom in, in financial markets. It's likely there's another 10% in equity markets, bond markets, perhaps a little closer to their nadir. Uh, but we're gonna continue to have that volatility until there is some clarity regarding how much the Fed is going to raise rates, because that really is what investors, as Jillian points out, are watching. As it relates to the economy itself, I think it's a good argument that we're already either entering a recession or in a recession. Manufacturing activity has dropped significantly. We've seen leading indicators also decline. We've seen consumption activity fall. And CEOs are beginning to predict that the second half of their economic activity for their companies is going to be a lot lower. 
So, Jillian, what about that? Uh, let me pick one of the things that Peter talks about, and that is consumption numbers. We had personal consumption numbers that really softened in the United States this week. And also, of course, we have the consumer confidence numbers, which are softening as well. That is a big driver, as we all know, of the U.S. economy. How big a risk is that at this point for the U.S. economy? Well, there are two or three factors right now which make it incredibly hard to work out what's going on. One is the fact that, yes, you're seeing a real loss of consumer confidence, really quite staggering decline in consumer confidence. And that kind of makes sense given the scale of price shock and inflation shock. But something that we haven't really seen before in previous economic cycles is that a lot of consumers are sitting on fat cushions of savings compared to the far past because of the fiscal stimulus. Jillian Ted and Peter Krauss will be staying with us as we get some investment advice in these turbulent times. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. 
let's take some time out to go traveling. Not the camel route to Iraq, but the financial route to a buck. Not only does the dollar buy less at the supermarket than it used to, it also buys less in terms of other currencies than it did 10 years ago, a period that has included two official devaluations of the dollar. That, of course, is Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street. That was back in 1975. And once again, that buck is buying less at the supermarket, but it sure isn't buying less in terms of foreign exchange. Peter Krause of Aperture Investors and Jillian Ted of the Financial Times are still with us. So, Peter, it's hard to know where the markets are going, but the one thing I think we can say is they are turbulent. In these turbulent times, where do you put your bucks at this point? Where does it make sense? Well, look, you're not going to be able to put your money anywhere that is going to be unaffected by the volatility. So if the objective is find some place to invest where you don't have volatility, that's the zero-sum game. On the other hand, equities will go up over time, and credit has gotten a lot cheaper. And so if you're looking for incremental places to invest, even large institutional investors, you have to be beginning to look at putting some money back into the equity markets, they're down 30 plus percent, and some money into the fixed income markets because spreads have moved out pretty dramatically. But you're not gonna be able to do that without volatility, and you're not gonna be able to do that with probably without additional drawdowns, so you need to be cautious about how much you commit. Well, and Julian, I wonder if you, uh, you're going to be able to do that without additional risk. I mean, Peter says that credit is cheaper now. It's a better buy. You can get better returns. There may be a reason for that. What is the risk of defaults? We haven't had defaults in a while now. Well, we're going incredibly retro in all kinds of ways right now. Um, you haven't yet got the sideburns, unfortunately, David, but I hope we see that soon of your former host. Um, but, you know, one of the things that investors have not had to worry about for a very long time are corporate defaults um, and risks in the high-yield market. Um, we're still not seeing that. The default rate right now is incredibly low um, in spite of all the falls in the equity market and concern about recession. But what you're seeing a number of bankers and lawyers and others talk about is the likelihood that as rates keep going up, um, we're going to start to see more and more pressure on risky companies. Now, it's hard to predict exactly when that is going to strike because most risky companies, most high-yield companies or leveraged loans have been essentially refinancing themselves or have locked in financing for quite a while. So it will really only begin to bite when the refinancings come up. Um, and that's a sort of staggered timetable because each company is different. But when you do see those refinancing occurs, you could, could see these very nasty shock for investors. And you're already seeing the high-yield bond market react to that. In fact, in some ways, that's the clearest part of the markets where you've actually seen a reaction to the tightening of liquidity conditions. So that is absolutely something that investors should be looking to in the next year or so as one of the big risks that are awaiting us all. Peter, I wonder if we're getting an accurate read on the full market right now in this sense. Back in 1975, by the way, I was just starting law school. I did have sideburns, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't quite as white, but I did have them. But one difference well, is... Bring them back, David. Yeah, exactly. I'll try to bring them back. <laughs> I did be a lot whiter that now. But, but Peter, I wonder, <laughs> one of the changes that we've seen since 1975 is how much the markets are private rather than public. We've seen a big shift. And I wonder whether we really are getting an accurate read on all that private capital. No, we are not. By the way, I never had good sideburns. That's why I went with a beard. But um, with regards to the private markets, I think that that is a serious problem, meaning that we, we know for a fact that private markets lag public market valuations. But it's also a fact that the assets owned in private hands are also being affected by this market change. You cannot have this change in the interest rate 
construct that I spoke about briefly before without affecting values. So private equity assets are going to decline in value. I've already gone down in value, but haven't yet been adjusted. And those adjustments, when they occur, are going to cause stress for investors. In some cases, they could cause liquidity issues. In some cases, they may actually make raising additional capital much more challenging. And in some cases, they could cause defaults and ultimate bankruptcies. So that, that whole private credit and private equity sector is a place where we need to be focused on risk rising substantially and potential stress coming from a mark-to-market -market of those assets. Uh, Julian, these days we can't have a real conversation about investing without talking about China in one way or another. Of course, we have the anniversary, 25th anniversary of the handover. Is China a place that's attractive potentially for investors? Because they're going the other direction from the United States and much of the West. We're tightening. They're actually loosening. Well, absolutely. China is something of an enigma in many ways because, yes, they are going the opposite direction from most other markets right now in terms of loosening. There is great pressure on President Xi to ensure that he tries to hit the GDP growth targets because he has the all-important party congress later on this year. Um, and all the signs are that because of the COVID lockdowns, they're in danger of missing the growth targets. So President Xi has every incentive to try and stimulate the economy going forward in the coming months. Um, the problem, though, really is two or threefold. Firstly, we don't know how China will respond if there are more COVID outbreaks. Peter, what about it? You've had a career now investing your money and other people's money. Is that a place we should be putting money right now into China? Can't be short China right now. Just can't. Being long China is a challenge for sure. But being short, I think, is a, is a very big risk. Look, I also think investors are somewhat circumspect about the motivations of the government with regards to the external investor. How will they treat the bond investors? How are they going to treat equity investors vis-a-vis -vis regulation and changes to companies inside of China that were thought early to be leaders and real growers. Those, those issues still remain. But China's a, a huge market, very strong economy when it starts to grow. It will come back. COVID will get resolved. And it's still, it China still provides significant exports to the world and buys significant imports. Jillian, what about Europe? Well, Europe, as ever, is a varied mix. Um, you've got some places like the UK, which look really pretty um, soggy right now, to use a wonderful British phrase. You've got other parts of Europe that are doing better. Um, but the one thing everyone needs to realize is that Europe is very vulnerable to any retaliation or any more retaliation on the energy front as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So Europe, as ever, is unlikely to... <clears throat> go completely off a cliff, but is unlikely to boom. And so there's growing concern right now about the price pressures building. Um, and, you know, that isn't a very safe haven either. I guess the real message from all of this is that right now we're not dealing with a beauty parade in terms of decisions about where to put your money. It's really more like an ugly parade, um, mm -hmm. which is an ugly place. And probably the only best option out of all that is a classic investment advice of diversify, hold your breath. Thank you so much to Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors and Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. Coming up, 25 years after China took back Hong Kong, what has changed? We asked Deborah Lair of Edelman Global Advisors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
On a stormy night on July 1st, 1997, British rule over Hong Kong came to an end, replaced by the regime of one country, two systems, something the 28th and last British governor, Lord Patton, had high hopes for at the time. I hoped for the best. Um, you couldn't leave um, thinking anything but that. I think it's just in the last 10 years or so that, that things have taken a, a turn for the worse, as I think we have in China uh, overall. 25 years later, Hong Kong is a very different place. Its economy has doubled, and it is ruled by a China that is more assertive in Hong Kong and in its relations with the rest of the world, with the Chinese defense minister warning of possible conflict over Taiwan. If anyone dares to secede Taiwan from China, we will not hesitate to fight. We will fight at all costs, and we will fight to the very end. This is the only choice for China. And today, the United States is using economic weapons, such as trade restrictions, to influence China's behavior, as explained by United States Trade Representative Catherine Tai. The China tariffs uh, are, uh, in my view, a significant piece of leverage. We need to use our tools more effectively, we need new tools. Even as President Xi warns against what he calls weaponizing the world economy. Politicizing, instrumentalizing, and weaponizing the world economy using a dominant position in the global financial system to wantonly impose sanctions would only hurt others as well as oneself. And to take us through China as it is today, 25 years after that handover in Hong Kong, we welcome Deborah Lair. She's the CEO of Edelman Global Advisory. Deborah, you really are a China expert. We always love it when you're on. Uh, give us a sense of how China has changed in the last 25 years. And one way I can start actually is COVID. COVID has changed us all. What about President Xi's reaction to COVID and zero COVID as it's called? Well, really excellent question. And David, it's so nice to see you again. Thanks for having me on. China has changed unbelievably in the last 25 years. As I look back when I was doing trade negotiations at that time, one of the most fundamental um, concessions that we got from the Chinese, just to give you an example and put this in context, is the fact that they would actually have to publish their trade laws and only ones that were published were enforceable. So we've come a long way as they built a world-class legal system and trade system. Now, enforcement's a whole other question, but it shows the significant changes that we've seen over time in the development of the economy. COVID is a whole other issue. She reiterated his position on following a dynamic COVID policy. They have definite concerns about the impact that it's had on the economy, but he had reiterated the fact that people were willing to sacrifice on the social and economic cost given the potential of deaths. And China had an article recently in Nature magazine where they estimated that if Omicron were allowed to go free, essentially, in China, it could result in 1.6 million deaths. China is not going to stand for that, particularly in the lead up to the party plenum this likely this November. So for Xi, they now look at what is the impact on the economy. As he looks last year, last year was a banner year for China. They were the largest source of direct foreign investments. Most foreign companies who were there reiterated they were going to stay. The majority of them were profitable. They were positive about the prospects. She went into 2022 in a very strong position and with a view that his policy around COVID was the best in the world. Now hits Ukraine, Russia's invasion, world potential recession, and then the lockdown in Shanghai. 
definitely was overzealous uh, officials who were going after that, but that had both a psychological impact when it was a city as sophisticated and as crucial to China as Shanghai, but also to the rest of the world. And it's really causing ripples through the economy. We're likely to only see 0%, uh, well, negative growth or 0% growth in the second quarter, and they definitely will not hit their targets of 5.5% that they had for this year. But I want to say one last thing too. When Xi Jinping made his comments doubling down and he was in Wuhan, uh, obviously where COVID first broke out, to make these comments, the most important thing that the Chinese did was actually put out a policy to try and govern and create guidelines for actions that local officials should take if there's a COVID breakout in their city. And this is an attempt to address this issue of overzealous officials to limit the economic impact where possible when there are just a few breakouts. Uh, so, Deborah, that's interesting, uh, sort of uh, cabin, as it were, some of the activities of local officials. At the same time, a lot of Western experts that we talk to here on Bloomberg say, you know, President Xi's approach on zero COVID is just wrong. He's going to have to change, have to go over to vaccinations. He's going to have to change his economic approach overall. If you just look at that chart, how well China has done compared to other countries. If I can't say whether she honestly believes it's the right policy or not, but there's no question they're not going to change it. Deborah, this has been so terribly helpful, as it always is, I must say. Thank you so much for being back on Wall Street Week. That's Deborah Lair. She's the CEO of Edelman Global Advisory. Coming up, we wrap up our week once again with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. 
athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We are joined, thankfully, once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thanks for being back with us. Let's start with some of the big news in the economy this week, which is consumer spending in the United States. It is softening, clearly. Also, consumer confidence is down. There are those who say that means maybe the Fed doesn't need to hike as much, maybe even may get to cuts sooner than we thought. What do you think about consumer spending right now? Look, I think we're seeing that uh, inflation, which has eroded people's purchasing power, the end of the fiscal stimulus that gave people a lot of cash uh, last year, higher interest rates that are discouraging housing and housing allied uh, kinds of spending, generalized increases in uncertainty and just a bit more feeling of insecurity, All of that is taking uh, a toll on uh, spending. My guess is that that's going to continue for some time. And I think you'd have to say that whatever you thought about recession risks a month ago, the uh, recession risks through the year 2022 have to have gone up uh, in a quite material way. I felt for a long time, as you know, David, that we're not going to have inflation return near target without a significant economic downturn. But that downturn could happen either because interest rates uh, set by the Fed rise very, very sharply, or it could happen uh, because of a kind of self-fulfilling process coming out of the high inflation and reductions in people's incomes. And the latter possibility is looking like is looking uh, more likely today uh, than it was. And of course, if the economy did go into recession in the next uh, six to nine months, uh, then you'd probably see a reduction in inflationary pressures, and you'd see uh, the Fed probably feel that it had to push rates up uh, less than it would if the economy was continuing to grow strongly and labor was, uh, and there was very, very strong demand uh, pushing up wages and prices. So, so Larry, I just want to be very precise here because you and I have talked quite a bit about the likelihood of recession this year and next. And you said next year, you think it's much more likely than that. But thus far, you've said this year, maybe not so much. Are you saying, given the data coming in, perhaps a recession or a significant downturn, whether it's a technical recession or not, maybe coming faster than you thought? Yeah, I think the risks of a 2022 recession are significantly higher uh, than I would have judged uh, six or nine weeks uh, ago. Look, David, we've got the first quarter numbers in the bank. 
uh, they are negative for GDP. There are many forecasters who believe that the second quarter also had negative uh, GDP growth. It's not really the formal definition of recession, but people often say it's a recession when you have two quarters of negative GDP growth uh, in a row. And there's, uh, I think, probably close to a 50-50 chance, maybe it's a bit less than that, that we've had two negative quarters in a row. So I think you have to say that the chance that a recession is ultimately dated as having begun uh, during 2022 uh, has uh, gone up up significantly. We've got time yet. The structure of the economy has changed, so I'm not at all uh, confident about it, but I would say the nearer-term risks have uh, certainly uh, gone up. You know, you saw something in reports. It used to be just uh, Target. Uh, now there are reports coming out of other retailers, reports coming out of semiconductors suggesting fairly drastic reductions in demand and fairly substantial buildups in excess inventories, which will then lead uh, to things on sale and will lead to reduced production. Larry, one of the things that got us here is obviously inflation and the question of supply chain problems. And you've been emphatic that they are not so transitory. Whether transitory or not, why are they lasting as long as they are? Why aren't we getting more employees in airports and more people flying airplanes and all the things we're seeing around the, the country? By the way, in the, here in, the, in New York, we're having to shut some public pools because we can't find lifeguards. I think it's a combination of things. We've restricted immigration in various ways relative uh, to where it was. That means fewer people here and working. We've got a variety of problems in terms of reliable production and transportation uh, coming out of uh, China. We have you know, a, a non-trivial number of people with uh, long COVID and unable uh, to work. There are a larger number of people who want to do jobs uh, where uh, you can uh, work at home. Employers are reluctant uh, to pay what it takes to fill those vacancies quickly because they think it's more profitable to ultimately have some vacancies and turn some people away than it is to raise raise wages across the board. I think all of these uh, things are contributing factors. And I think with respect to airlines, uh, while a lot of it is on uh, the labor side, uh, there are also some very substantial uh, infrastructure issues that the country has underinvested in uh, for a long time. Uh, and finally, Larry, we had NATO meetings, maybe historic meetings, so they really changed their strategy this week. And I wonder, as we look at the war uh, in Ukraine that Russia has perpetrated there, uh, do you think there may be long-term, really long-term effects on the global economy? Certainly there have been in the short term, but what about longer term? Well, historians will debate whether the Russia-Ukraine war was a cause of big changes or was a consequence of tectonic forces that had been operating uh, for some time. But I was very struck when you had a NATO meeting 
that for the first time invited a number of countries in Asia to participate in it and identified uh, China as a security risk that had to be uh, prepared uh, for alongside Russia, it did very much have the feeling of a world that was uh, forming blocks and uh, choosing up teams, not unlike, or in some ways, uh, not unlike uh, the alignment that existed uh, in the 50s and uh, the 60s when Russia and China were allied and there was a mobilization of Western countries along with some Asian countries uh, against them. And that seemed to be a way in which uh, things, uh, things were moving and that's gonna be a quite different world than the world we've had for the last 25 or 35 years. Okay, thank you so very much to Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor right here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. The potentially toxic mix of politics and sports. It's the long 4th of July weekend in the United States, that summertime holiday when we look forward to fireworks accompanied in Boston by the famed Boston Pops concert on the Charles River. To politicians giving speeches. Today we celebrate America. Our freedom, our liberty, our independence. To picnics, and not least, to sports. Whether it's baseball, with both the Yankees and the Mets on top of their divisions, or golf's John Deere Classic out in Illinois, or the early rounds of Wimbledon. I think the last couple points I was really suffering there. I feel really tired now. <laughs> so, with the country seemingly more divided than it's ever been... Defrauding the electoral count. I believe we can fix Illinois. I'm with all of you. Let's do this together. It's a good time to put all that political strife behind us and just get caught up in the game, right? Well, maybe not so fast, because it turns out that even as you root for your favorite athlete or team, the powers that be may be angling to use your sport to get their own edge, an edge that goes way beyond the point spread. Take Wimbledon, for example. This year, competitors from Russia and Belarus will be barred from competing as punishment for Russia's invading Ukraine. I feel good being uh, at the tournament without uh, having to see uh, players from that countries again. And China has just changed its sports law to authorize retaliation against anyone who shows the Middle Kingdom disrespect. Though what that means is anyone's guess. And even golf isn't immune from politics, with a major feud between the PGA and the upstart Live Golf, which is backed by the Saudi Wealth Fund. The PGA Tour, an American institution, can't compete with a foreign monarchy that is spending billions of dollars in an attempt to buy the game of golf. And it turns out none other than the former golfer-in-chief one Donald J. Trump, as he welcomes the tour to his home course in Bedminster, New Jersey, on July 29. But all that's almost a month away. In the meantime, let's try and leave politics out of it and just enjoy the holiday. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.